At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Доживем до завтра. Хорошо. До завтра. До завтра. About nine feet tall, thin, white skin, no face, no eyes. Давай, 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 переводи. Этот свер три метра ростом, белый, без лица. А ты откуда знаешь? I've seen one. When you were eating. I fought one. And all your theories about it. They're all wrong. You know why they feed captive predators live prey? Because if they don't, the predator gets bored and it stops eating. It needs the thrill of the hunt. We're not here to train this monster with swords and axes. We're here to entertain it. And this food... This food isn't to make us strong. It's to, uh... Make us plump. So we're full of all the nutrients and protein that a growing monster might need. So eat up, boys. Enjoy. This is your last meal.
Greetings, stranger friends, and welcome back to another episode of Stranger Danger, where today we're here to talk about Chapter 6, The Dive. I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who has found this podcast who has been sticking with this podcast, who has been listening to this podcast. And I'm, ta- I'm not just talking about you folks in the United States of America. No, no, no. We have listeners, we as in me, <laughs> as listeners all over the globe. So I want to thank everybody uh, from the, the people. Uh, there, there's a listen in the Ukraine. Uh, there's, there's been listens in, in, in Brazil, in Australia. Do you know there's a country called Australia? There, there are listeners all over the world. And, and I want to thank you. You and even you and everyone else who has been listening to this podcast. I, I appreciate it oh so much. And, and it's, we are getting there, my friends. I mean, as I am, am talking about this right now, uh, it is a Sunday afternoon. So you're probably going to see this. You might notice this in your podcatcher uh, Monday morning uh, but, or Sunday night, depending on when I get this done. But my point is, we are closing in uh, once again on the, the wait being over. Like, we, we, were, we waited for years for Stranger Things to come back. And yet, this month has, been, has felt almost as long when you're when things are left off the way they were at the end of seven and you're like oh my goodness now we have to wait a month for for two more for the big final two and i'm afraid i am afraid of what we're going to be finding in those two but i'm also excited i'm also thrilled and i can't wait to watch them and then i can't wait to talk about them uh to all of you folks but that is the future that is far ahead from now that's days away Let's not think about that right now. Let's just focus on one episode. This episode. Let's get ready and talk about Chapter 6, The Dive. This episode opens up once again on an empty road. That's happened a few times. But this time, but this time, it's filled with three Hawkins patrol cars as they are racing their way to Reefer Rick's house. The cops get out there, and Chief Powell finds Andy sitting there. They ask him, where is he? And he leads them to the back of the house, by the water, where they, they find a stunned Jason. It looks like uh, he's just staring blankly into space, like just ahead, just like completely withdrawn. Uh, he's facing the water, but then we see that he's holding the broken, dead, empty husk of his friend Patrick. He turns his head slowly to see who is approaching. We then quickly cut inside the house as the police start asking Jason questions. Where was Eddie when that happened? What? What? Eddie. Where was Eddie when you saw this? He was in... In the boat, like I said. Right, right. But then, uh, 
Who lifted Patrick out the water? You're not listening to me. Why aren't you listening to me? Jason, we are listening to you. No, you're not. You're not. Eddie, he's... Eddie is a vessel. Just a vessel. A vessel? For Satan. He's made a pact with the devil. Now he has his powers. You don't believe me? We're just, uh... Processing all of this, that's all, okay? Yeah. How do you expect to stop the devil if you don't believe he's real? Oh, God, I love that line. How do you expect to stop the devil if you don't believe he's real? I hate Jason, but I love that line. So you may have thought, okay, now that Patrick died and Eddie didn't touch him, Jason you know, has to realize that Eddie has nothing to do with it. But nope. He just jumps right to the next conclusion, a way to both explain it and also to blame Eddie. It's Satan. And it's Satan working through his vessel, Eddie Munson. We then cut back outside of Reefer Rick's estate to see more police activity including there's a boat in the water searching around. And then we pan down below the surface of the water. I thought we were going to see Eddie swimming, hiding away. Uh, but no, we go down, down into the water. We see a few fishes. Uh, that's the plural of fish, right? Fishes. We see some fishies <laughs> swimming along, doing what fishies like to do, swimming, you know, and having a grand old time. And then boom! Out of nowhere, a tentacle comes out of the water, grabs that fish, and pulls it down. And then we cut to the opening credits. When we come back, uh, we appear to be in some sort of underground interrogation area. I don't know if it's a factory. I don't know what it is exactly. But something tells me it's off the books. And uh, that suit, that Agent Wallace, the guy that um, helped, well, he got shot while he thought he was getting a pizza. He's there uh, and he's sitting in a chair and he doesn't really look so good. Seems like he's been, quote-unquote, questioned by some of Sullivan's people. And then, of course, the man himself, the jerk himself, shows up, and he tries to get some information out of Wallace. I can make a start. I can make the pain end. Where's the girl? There are two proposed explanations for what is happening. Explanation one, an invisible boogeyman from another dimension is slaughtering these kids. Explanation two, Dr. Brennan's special little pet has gone rogue again, and he and his lackeys are now seeking to cover it up. Perhaps in hopes of selling their pet to the Soviets. Which explanation sounds plausible to you? Hmm? <laughs> There's still a chance to retain yourself, Mr. Wallace. Where is she? No! 
buddy, uh, Sullivan, uh, listen, that, um, that whole scenario about the invisible boogeyman, that theory, it's not as uh, crazy as you might think it is. Just, uh, just want to let you know that that might hold some merit. A lot more, at least, than Eleven going rogue and possibly being sold to the Russians? Come on. He asks uh, Wallace, where is the girl? Where is the girl? But I love that he either really doesn't know or he's sticking to his duty uh, and he doesn't budge. So he's tossed, uh, I'm assuming, back into, because he's like, no, he already knows how bad this is, into this tall, narrow metal box, a torture box of some kind, a hot box maybe, Picture a locker from an old 80s movie that's big enough to stuff a couple of nerds into, but but bigger still because Wallace, he ain't no nerd. He's a big guy. So I'm assuming they put him in there and they add, they, it looked like there was hot, I don't know if there were heat lamps or something, but um, that doesn't look like a lot of fun. So I feel bad for this guy, but I am really happy that he is, uh, he's not telling this jerk anything. But where is Eleven? Well, we know, we know. She's off hanging off with her friends Sam and Martin and Nina. We find her in a room that looks like it's been turned into maybe her bedroom or a dormitory or something. She's sitting crisscross applesauce on her cot, and she's looking pretty dejected, you know? She looks over, and she stares at that weighted bathing suit that she was wearing inside Nina. It hangs on a coat rack across from her. Then we see her in a room talking to uh, Dr. Brenner. He talks about how stroke victims can forget how to do things like eat, speak, or walk because the stroke scrambles the signals in their brain. And he believes that when she was attacked last year, assuming the bite, he believes that her signals were scrambled in just the same way. But just as a stroke victim can learn to walk again, he believes she can learn to use her abilities again. And everything she needs is still inside her head. She just needs to remember. I, I don't know if I liked or I hated that he touched her nose, like he was trying to be fatherly, fatherly to her. Um, and it, it was almost like, oh, is that sweet? Or are you a, an, an effing creep? And, and don't touch her. Leave her alone. He then uh, brings her to a secured room. He shows her this room, and it's filled like an old like an old blockbuster it's filled with VHS videotapes everything that took place in my lab is captured on videotape every success and every failure it's important for you to not just see your past but to fully re-experience it in doing so i believe we can repair your broken signals as we saw tonight, that process has already begun. If this all happened, why don't I remember? Because you do not want to. Our brains have a defense mechanism in place to protect it from bad memories, from trauma. You buried these memories long ago. Papa. When I was in there, I saw something. There was blood. So much blood. That was another memory, a, a more powerful one. 
invading from your subconscious. You have demons, Eleven. You have demons in your past. That is why we must proceed carefully. One step at a time. One memory at a time. If we go too fast, I'm afraid you could become lost in the darkness. So are we all. I'm starting to think, can we actually trust Brenner? Is he actually on our side, on Eleven's side? Obviously, we're on Eleven's side. But are these, are these things he could actually... Is he, like, being genuine? I, I kind of feel like he is. I mean, especially that part where he says, if, you know, if... if um, if you fail, so fail us all. Um, I, I'm sure I didn't get that right. But I love that um, segment because it kind of, exp it really explains what the Nina Project is. It is a sensory deprivation tank to a degree, except for the sensory of these, um, these videotapes, these memories. You, we see while that's going on, we see uh, Eleven getting prepared to go in the tank. She's got that suit on. She's got the cap on with all the electrodes hanging off it. We also see her get uh, injected with some sort of uh, yellowy substance that she didn't seem to like very much. And we, we intercut, actually, between her talking with, uh, with Brenner and her preparing to go into the tank. And she talks about, you know, how she can't recall these things. And he's like, in due time... Uh, in due time, but she she does ask about the with the blood. He says, you know, you have you have demons, demons in your past. That is a very interesting way of putting it, Brenner. Very interesting way. The scene ends with her going in the tank. The monitor's on as she drifts into whatever state of consciousness she needs to be in. Like I don't know if she's completely asleep, half asleep, in a hypnotic, uh, um, you know, mixture of consciousness and and unconsciousness but also um kudos to brenner for saving all those tapes from the hawkins lab i'm wondering and getting them to nevada now i'm wondering how long the nina project has been in uh like in construction in planning uh owens has been with her since or has been in part of the group, not really with her. Owens has been with Will since season two. I'm wondering if we're going to get some sort of backstory that explains Brenner surviving, explains how he got involved with the Nina Project, all the tapes getting there. It's not crucial, but I would like something to fill in that gap to get us from where we were to where we are. So as we leave the uh, Nevada and the Nina project, we cut over to a construction site. It, it looks like there's a house being built somewhere. We're not really sure where right away. We see this guy that needs to take a bathroom break. I'll just say that. He puts his tool belt um, on a, I think it's the back of a truck or something. He puts his tool belt down and he quickly, quickly makes his way into the porta potty, but we're focused more on the tool belt and specifically the walkie-talkie that's in it. 
And then we realize we're in Hawkins, Indiana, as we see Eddie Munson sneak up, steal the walkie-talkie out of there, and get the hell out of there before anyone notices him. Because there's got to be someone there who's been paying attention to the, to the news, and they would be on the lookout for this long-haired uh, young fella that's been in the news. For sure. We stay in Hawkins as we go over to the wheeler wagon, making its way down a road. They're heading back to Eddie, but Robin would really rather stay in the car while they have to go talk to him. Not to be a wimp, but can I maybe sit in the car for this visit? Because this is going to totally and royally suck. It'll be fine. I just can't stand to see those dull eyes of Eddie's break again. I really, really can't. At least he can drink himself into feeling better. That's what my mom does. Why don't we just give it a trial run? Hey, Eddie. Uh, good news first this time. We got you some dustin-approved junk food and that six-pack that you requested. Oh, yeah, and we found Vecna. Only the bad news is that he's in that other, darker, much scarier dimension that we told you about, and the gate's closed, so we have no way of getting to him. Like, he's entirely shut off to us, so basically you're screwed. And no, no, I know that you are already screwed, but now you're, like, doubly, triply screwed. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe we don't put it like that. We're one step closer to finding Vecna. That's what we say. That's what's important. See, Robin? Positive spin can make all the difference. Uh-huh. Oh, shit. See, you have to remember, they have no idea what went down at Reefer Rick's last night. They thought they were going back there to hang out with a hiding Eddie, but when they drive up, there's all kinds of commotion. News vans, police, onlookers trying to figure out what is going on. Our gang of friends gets out and goes around behind one of the news vans to listen to Powell giving a, a sort of uh, press conference reporting a homicide at the lake. Because of the news cameras, uh, this is all over the TVs in Hawkins. We see Mike and Nancy's parents watching from their home. We see Lucas's parents with Erica watching from their home. And then Powell names the victim as an 18-year-old from Hawkins High, Patrick McKinney. You see Lucas react to hearing his teammate is dead. Over at the Wheelers, Ted is wondering, where the hell is the FBI? We have a serial killer on the loose here. We also see Dustin's mom watching from her home. She looks really nervous as Powell names a person of interest, Mr. Eddie Munson. The kids know this is not good. Erica you see here looking at the TV like, how can this be possible? Finally, while they're you know, right there amongst all these people looking for Eddie, Eddie's able to reach them with this stolen walkie-talkie. He told them that he's holed up over at Skull Rock. They know exactly where that is. And they're on their way. Because now the entire town knows about Eddie. We see our friend's parents starting to really be worried. Also, how cool is it to have someplace called Skull Rock? in your town. I wish I had that. All right, hold tight, Eddie. Don't worry, your friends are on their way. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, 
engineering your success. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. So while the crew and Hawkins are making their way over to Skull Rock, we take a trip over to Salt Lake City as our van clan has arrived at Susie's house. They make it a point to mention to be on your best behavior, and they really, really hammer it home to Argyle. They knock on the door, and the door opens, and they seem to walk into chaos. There are kids everywhere. Now, I guess Mormons are known for having large families, lots of children, and that seems to be the case with Susie's family for sure. There are kids just running this house ragged. There's a kid dressed up as a Native American shooting arrows. There are kids having sword fights. There's a girl pretending to choke to death while one of the other kids is making a movie. And he, the, the boys come in and they're like, Can't, he says, can't you not see that we are filming? And I think he painted a little mustache on himself so he felt like an artistic auteur director. But nobody seemed to care that four teenage boys just kind of show up out of nowhere, looking for Susie and walking through the house. We see two kids actually making dinner. And then we see the kid that was shooting the arrows before, uh, just turning off the power, turning it on, just, just driving the, uh, the whole household crazy. Suddenly, an older sibling showed up out of nowhere, and she and Argyle make eye contact for a moment. Looks like Argyle's like, oh, he seems to already be in love. But again, nobody seems to care that there's just four teenage boys that showed up out of nowhere. Maybe, maybe friends, kids are coming left and right, that they're just used to this at this point. So uh, this girl, the teenage girl, takes the little kid who was turning off all the power and brings him upstairs to put him into a timeout. And finally, she addresses these four young men who just showed up at her house and followed her up the stairs. Who the hell are you? Argyle, uh, you are? Eden. Like the garden. Wow, hey, uh, we're looking for Susie. Do you know where she is? Third floor, second floor on your left. You see her, you make sure to give that selfish little four-eyed shit a nice little shove for me. Absolutely, Eden, I, I will shove her for you. I will, I will do anything for you. Well, great, she's not here. Give her a shove. So it seems like Argyle and Eden, which you'd have to imagine is Susie's older sister, they seem to have a little connection because they were giving each other a little bit of the googly eyes. Uh, she tells them where Susie is, but also, you know, says, give her, give her a shove for me. And you realize what she means when they get into the room. They don't see her there, but they see this uh, wire hanging out of the window. And Mike's like, oh, give her a shove because she's on the roof. First of all, Jonathan walks right into that room without knocking. Uh, but then when they notice the wire hanging out the window, they find her outside adjusting this giant antenna 
which I think at first I just assumed was a TV antenna, but of course it's her radio antenna so she can talk to Dustin. She's like, who the heck are you? Do you notice that her sister says, who the hell are you? And she says, who the heck are you? She doesn't swear. Eden seems to be the rebellious one in the family. But Susie, not so much. Uh, She says, who the heck are you and what are you doing in my room? And they say, we're Dustin's friends and we need your help. So then we leave the Salt Lakes of Utah and go to the frozen lakes of Soviet Russia. I nailed the accent there. But we're not in the prison this time. We're not with Jimmy Hopper. No, no, no. We're in a field as the sun is rising. Snow is everywhere. And we see Yuri's broken plane laying there on the ground. Oh, God. They're okay. Thank goodness. We see Murray walking back to the plane, and he meets up with Joyce, who is tending to a fire. You said an hour. I underestimated. I thought you were dead. Might as well be. We are truly in hell if hell froze over. There's nothing south, but two miles north I saw some smoke. Could be a town, could be a house. Maybe somebody there knows where we can find this prison. The top secret prison, really? Right. Any luck with our friend? What do you think? (laughs) They make their way over to not so far away where Yuri is tied and gagged to a tree. Hey! Dipshit! We're out of here. Last chance. Where's the prison? I told you. Yuri will help you for a right price. I told you we're wasting our time. Half. What? What? You heard me, you stubborn bastard. Half the reward. 20,000. 30,000. 22. 25. All right. <laughs> Looks like we got ourselves a moron! <laughs> you thought I was serious. He thought I was serious. I got you. I got you good. (laughs) There's only one thing you get if you take this deal. You get to live. You are not killer. Oh, you're right. He's not a killer. No. But see, the thing is, we don't need to kill you. We can just leave you here. Because there's nothing for miles. And no one will find you. No human, at least. I saw tracks. Tracks. In the woods, Yuri. Bears. Bears. Who knew you could see your own future? Shall we fly out of here, little bird? Ah, da, da. Bye-bye, Yuri. You should go east, not north. My warehouse is there. Supplies, guns, truck. We will need to reach prison by nightfall if you hope to save your friend. That is if he's not already dead. So while money does talk in Yuri's world, the thought of being left out there in the middle of nowhere to bears also seems to be a great motivator to, to him. So he's telling them, hey, I have this warehouse. We can get supplies. We can get a truck. And that's the only way we're going to be able to get to the prison and try to save your friend if he's not already dead. 
And speaking of said prison, we go over and we see Hopper and the group of prisoners, including Enzo, who I keep calling him Enzo, even though I know that's not his name. We see them being led into the yard. They think, okay, this is it. But then they're surprised as they're led further into another room, a room filled with a feast. It actually seems too good to be true. They all go crazy eating, but Hopper doesn't look like he even wants to eat that much. He drinks, though, and then he seems to stumble off his chair. Uh, not sure. He just seems a little drunk. One of the prisoners says uh, he better eat because he knows what happens. And he starts telling him that uh, what he's seen since he's been there. He's seen six men enter the, their very room that they're eating in now. And they came out all fat and happy. And then that night, the monster took 30 seconds to kill all of them. They're there at that feast to have strength, to eat and get strong, to test the monster, to help them train it for war. Those men scattered, though, and he said, we need to stick together. And they're all like, yes, we need to stick together. But then Hopper gets back up, and he starts to describe the very monster that this man had seen as Enzo translates it to the rest of the people. That's the clip I played to open this episode. Uh, he talks about, he's like, let me guess, this monster's about nine feet, thin, white skin, no face. And they're looking on like, how does he know about this? He says, all the theories you have, they're wrong. We're not here to train it. We're here to entertain it. Basically, this feast isn't to get us strong. It's to plump us up. So we're full of the nutrients and protein that a growing monster might need. And he's like, eat up, guys. This is your last meal. I love the confidence that, that Hopper has in the way he says this. Like, just it's all a matter of fact. I just wished it was confidence in something good. Not like, yep, guys, face it. We're all going to be eaten. We jump back over to the Nina Project and into Eleven's memories inside the Hawkins lab. She's playing with what can best be described as a home version of the Plinko game from Price is Right, although this predates Plinko, which debuted in 1983 on Price is Right, which I'm guessing is probably a year or two before this is taking place, if I'm guessing correctly in the timeline. Seems like she is attempting to use her powers to aim for a specific number uh, and she's not having any luck with this and then that orderly comes up behind her and speaks with her asking which number are you aiming for I don't know that's my impression of the orderly and he gives her advice about sometimes stepping away for a moment and letting your mind clear she seems to want nothing to do with it and ignores him and keeps on playing the game he tells her how she reminds him of someone he used to know really well. And then he takes the chip from her and he places it on the number one position. One? Papa said that he doesn't exist, I know. But can I tell you a secret? Sometimes Papa doesn't tell the truth. I spent years with one. Right here. In this very room. Where? 
Where is he? Maybe we'll save that story for another day. He doesn't have a happy ending, I'm afraid. But he was a lot like you. Everything was hard for him. Then, out of nowhere, he walked in here, and it was like... something had changed. And I asked him what's different, and he said... He said he had figured it out. He had found his strength in a memory from his past. Something that made him sad, but also angry. Do you maybe have a memory like that? Do you remember the day a strange woman came to see you? This would have been when Eight was still here. She was calling a name to you. That was your mother. Mama is dead. She died making me. And who told you that? So this orderly guy seems to be really trying to connect with Eleven, telling her about how using a memory from the past to help her focus her powers the way that one did. He mentions Terry Ives, says that that's Eleven, that's your mother. And of course, in this memory, Eleven still thinks her her mama died in childbirth. Uh, He also brings up uh, one and how he knew him and how he used to be afraid. And, and scared and didn't know how to do things. But then one day, he figured it out. Uh, he also made sure to, re- to say that, you know, Papa doesn't always tell the truth. And this place and these people here, they're not what you think it is. But at this point in the memory, Brenner comes in and greets the children. And they all get in line, including Eleven. Good morning, children. Good morning, Papa. Uh, and the kids all head off, leaving that creepy orderly dude just standing there alone in the room, I, I don't like this guy. I, I gotta say, I don't, I don't like him. Outside the tank, we see Owens and Brenner are monitoring Eleven while she's going through this. Sam thinks they should have just told her the truth, while Martin thinks that would have risked everything. And she'll find out soon enough. We get one more shot of Eleven inside the tank, and you see her eyes are darting back and forth closed behind her eyelids like like I guess they say people do in dreams it looks like wild her eyes are just going crazy and then we jump back over to Hawkins our gang of friends are in the woods heading to Skull Rock Dustin is leading them by compass because he knows this is the way you go but Steve is convinced they're definitely going the wrong way he says it's a super popular makeout spot that wasn't popular until he made it popular. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows this is the wrong direction, and he takes them in a different direction, even though Dustin doesn't like veering off from the compass's course. But Steve is like, trust me. They all follow him, and in the back of the group, we see Max and Lucas. They're, they're walking together. Lucas is thinking about Patrick and wondering why him. 
But then he remembered that one day he came to basketball practice with a black eye. He claimed he fell, but, but Lucas said, you could tell he was clearly lying. It's like Vecna is targeting people with something in their life. Max finishes his thought, something that's hurting them, haunting them. He said he didn't really know Patrick, so he just kind of looked the other way when he saw the black eye. But he did know Max, and he's sorry he wasn't there for her. She tries to say it's okay, you know, she disappeared. But he says, no, you didn't. I just didn't look hot enough, but I see you now. I see you. I love that they're just rekindling whatever relationship, whether it's friendship, whether it's boyfriend and girlfriend, just the fact that they're getting on the same page and being friendly and enjoying each other's company again. I, I love it. I love it. Now, in between, because uh, we had Stephen and Dustin at the front, Max and Lucas in the back, in the middle we have Robin and Nancy. Uh, Robin comments how, how the two of them, Max and Lucas, are so cute together. She talks about uh, the silver lining of maybe some old flames are being rekindled. But Nancy looks at her like, you know, are you thinking of me and Steve? She said, no, 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 that wasn't a hint towards you or anything. But if it was a hint, would that be so terrible? Nancy opens up a bit about her feelings uh, with Jonathan and how she has felt him pulling away and how it has been bothering her. But she also noticed that when Robin was speaking, she talked about the happiness of her friends. And she said to Robin, does that make us friends? And Robin said, officially? Uh, yeah, totally. And you could see the look on Robin's face that she was, she was happy about that. And you know who else was happy? Steve the Hare Harrington, because he was right. They arrived at Skull Rock. Steve was a little braggadocious about finding it his way. Dustin's like, this, this doesn't make any sense. But Steve is like, y you just can't admit you're wrong, you little butthead. And then, out of nowhere, Eddie comes out and agrees that, in fact, yes, Dustin is a total butthead. Dustin is relieved to see him and goes up and gives him a big hug. It's a good thing he's hiding in the woods because it seems like the rest of Hawkins is hell-bent on finding him. In fact, at the exact moment that this was going on, there seems to be an assembly at the town hall where Chief Powell is talking to the Hawkins residents. He said there were several leads, and Eddie Munson is just one of them, that they're going to do everything in their power to find him. We see the Wheelers are there, the Sinclairs are there, and Mrs. Henderson is there. All of them are looking concerned. Powell is telling all of them that for their safety, there's going to be a strict curfew enforced. People think hiding from him is not the solution. It's already been days, and there's still been nothing. They've been doing that already. He knows they're all upset, but he promises them they will find him. No! You won't! Jason? Son, how about we talk about this in private? Why? So you can keep me quiet? So you can keep the truth from coming out? Look, I don't know about the rest of you, but I can't bear to listen to any more excuses and lies. That's enough. I agree, I've had enough. In fact, I think we've all had enough. Last night, 
Last night I saw things, things I can't explain. Things the police don't want to believe. And things that I don't want to believe myself, but I know what I saw. I know. And I've come to accept an awful truth. These murders are ritualistic sacrifices. We've all heard about how, how satanic cults are, are spreading through our country like some, some disease. And Eddie Munson, he's the leader of one of these cults. A cult that operates right here in Hawkins. The mall fire. All those unexplained deaths over the years. Some people, they, they say our town is cursed. They just don't know why. Now, now we do. Now we know. They call themselves Hellfire. That's bullshit! The Hellfire isn't a cult, it's a club for nerds. Erica, just the best. A club. A club. A harmless club. That's what they want you to think. But it's a lie. A lie designed to conceal the truth. And now this cult is protecting its leader, Eddie. Hiding him. Allowing him to, to continue his rampage. Last night, I became overcome with this feeling of, of hopelessness. Then I remembered Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And God knows there's good in this town, so much good. It's in this room. It's in this room, right here, right now. So I came here today, humbly, to ask for your help, to join me in this fight. Let us cast out this evil and save Hawkins together. Cast out the evil together. What a dick. Everyone just kind of stares at him, but then all of a sudden one dude gets up. He starts walking out of the auditorium with a beautiful mullet. He turns around and while everyone's staring at him, he looks at the crowd and he says, What are y'all just sitting around for? You heard the kid? Now a bunch of people are, are starting to get up. Uh, one by one, people are heading out. It seems like they're going to put together the cavalry to come look for this, uh, this Eddie Munson character and his satanic crew. Um, full satanic panic. Back in the 80s, uh, people thought games like Dungeons and & Dragons and music like Ozzy Osbourne or my personal favorite, Iron Maiden, were getting kids to worship the devil. I can only say... Um, I appreciate my parents uh, for never thinking that the music I was listening to was, was making me uh, uh, worship Satan. I really appreciate that. Especially, I was growing up and I was going to Catholic school as a kid, listening to the devil's music. But I never, ever once worshipped Satan. Oh, wait a minute. There was that one. Oh, wait, no, never mind. That was Santa. Never Satan, though. Never, ever Satan. He's whipping these people into some sort of frenzy. You gotta love Erica for, for, for standing up in front of the whole the whole town and saying bullshit and standing up for her friends. He passes out a flyer with a big wanted sign on the top of the page, uh, and it has the full Hellfire Club in it. We see Dustin, we see Lucas, we see Mike. All their parents are just like freaking out the fact that they're seeing this, seeing their kids on the paper, seeing their kids being blamed. I love seeing Dustin and Lucas's mom kind of glance at each other for a moment, clearly concerned. And when all the people leave, the police are saying, uh, you, you know, anyone who's out, at, you know, who, who uh, interferes with this investigation will be dealt with. 
Uh, and if anyone is out after curfew, they, well, it sounded it sounded like you know he was going to say you're going to be arrested, but the guy said you're going to be written up and it's going to be on your permanent record. And I don't think anybody uh, cared about that as they're kind of heading out, getting ready to I don't know, cause a hell of a lot of trouble trying to catch this guy. As the scene ends, we see our parents, Lucas's parents, Dustin's mom, and Mike and Nancy's parents all look at each other like, oh my goodness, what have our kids gotten themselves into? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So while things are crazy over in Hawkins, we jump over to Salt Lake City. And it sounds like they just filled Susie in on everything. She's like, this is crazy. This is hard to believe, but not so fast. It turns out they told her that the Nina Project was a code name for a secret video game console. Basically, America's answer to Nintendo. American Nintendo is what Argyle called it, which was a stupid name. But Susie, it's 16-bit. And she was like, 16-bit? For those of you who don't understand that, uh, when I was in eighth grade, we got our first 16-bit console, the Sega Genesis. Dating myself, I'm going to tell you right now, that was 1989. So to hear about a 16-bit console in 1986, when at the moment, at that moment, the Nintendo Entertainment System ruled the world with only eight bits, that would have been unheard of. This is all for a video game promotion? But they said, no, no, no. It's for Dustin, though, for his birthday. And, you know, she said, well, you know, I would do anything for Dusty Bun, but she tells them 
you know, after she helped Dustin change his grade, she had guilt. She felt real guilt. So she told father. And he took her computer away and locked it in his office. But then the power got turned off and turned back on. And you hear Eden downstairs yell, Cornelius! And Susie thinks, hmm, perhaps there is a way. But we're going to need a lot of help. It sounds like a plan is about to be hatched in the SLC. So we cut right back to Hawkins, and now we see the Wheelers, Mrs. Henderson, and the Sinclairs all race up and rush into Ted and Karen's house. Mrs. Wheeler runs downstairs in the basement looking for the kids, but nobody seems to be there. They should have been back by now. They should be back. What time was the movie? Uh, four hours ago. Hate to break it to you, Mrs. Wheeler, but they lied to you. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Molly. We don't think they're actually involved with this any guy, do we? I think at this point anything's possible. Our children are not murderers, Ted. Don't put words in my mouth. See, she doesn't twist my words. You're calling the theater? The police. Yeah, they have no idea where their kids are. You know, I remember those days. My parents had no idea where I was most of the day. Then I'd come home for dinner. Then I'd go out again until it got dark. Ah, the 80s and the 90s. Those were the days. So while Mrs. Wheeler calls the police because she's worried about the kids possibly being involved with Eddie, those same kids are in the woods being involved with Eddie. But, you know, we all know that Eddie is a good guy in all this. He tells them how his first walkie-talkie got ruined and how his watch got ruined, too. Stuck at the exact same time as their light bulbs went all kablooey in the Creel house. It seems like that surge of energy had to be Vecna attacking Patrick. They realize now where Vecna does his attacks from. But they need to figure out a way to get to the Upside Down. They talk about how things were so much easier when they had that girl with superpowers there to help them. And Eddie's like, yes, yes, you've, uh, you've mentioned her, yes. But as that's going on, Dustin keeps staring at his compass, pacing back and forth and back and forth. And then, all of a sudden, it came to him. Boom! Bada. Bada. Ooh. I was right. Skull Rock was north. Seriously, you're serious? Mm-hmm. This is Skull Rock, mm -hmm. okay? You're totally, absolutely, 100% wrong. Right now. Yes. And no. Oh my God. This compass worked correctly when we left the Wheelers. It was correct when we got in the car on Curly, but it started to slip the further east we went. Now, it's way off. When I was leading us here, I wasn't wrong. The compass was. So you're using faulty equipment, dude. You're still wrong. Except it isn't faulty. Lucas, do you remember what can affect the compass? An electromagnetic field. Yep. I'm sorry, I must have skipped that class. In the presence of a stronger electromagnetic field, the needle will deflect towards that power. So either there's some super big magnet around here, or there's a gate. But we're nowhere near the lab. But what if somehow there's another gate? a gate that we don't know about. It has to be smaller, way less powerful. Snack size gate. How, why? No idea. All I know is that something is causing this disturbance and the last time we've seen anything like it, it was a gate and I hope it is because then we'd have a way to Vecna and a shot at freeing Max from this curse. 
Where are you going? Hey, 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 hey! Eddie's still a wanted man. We can't just go for a hike in the woods. This little steel capsule might be the key to saving both Max and Eddie. What say you, Eddie the Banished? I say you're asking me to follow you into Mordor, which, if I'm totally straight with you, I think it's a really bad idea. But, uh, the Shire... The Shire is burning. So Mordor it is. What is Mordor? So I, I give Steve a pass on that. I'm thinking in the 80s, unless you really were into these books or into Dungeons and Dragons, you did not, you were not familiar with Mordor. Uh, in fact, Mordor is not part of the world of Dungeons and Dragons. I wonder if it, if it plays into anybody's campaign or games at all. That's a Lord of the Rings thing. But they were, you know, now with the, all the movies, the three Lord of the Rings, the three Hobbits, I feel like the thought the Shire and Mordor are more common in the pop cultural lexicon. Back then, it was definitely more a niche, niche, one of those things. Uh, it was definitely more a niche, niche. I'm done saying it. It was definitely a thing that was smaller uh, to more just towards the books. And it was still a couple of years before I read The Hobbit for the first time. And that's a book that I definitely want to reread. I think I've read it two or three times in my lifetime. The first one being for school in, in the eighth grade, I believe. And I wish I had that exact same paperback copy. Now I'll probably just get it on my Kindle like a nerd. But a couple things there. I, I love that once again, uh, the compass comes into play. The, you know, it's, it's something that calls back all the way to the first season and how they discovered the location of like where everything was going on. This was before they knew there was a gate. They just knew something was going on uh, from the compass. And once again, the compass is not leading them north, but leading them somewhere, someplace, and possibly another gate. And of course, what are they going to do? They have really no option. You could see Dustin's excitement when Eddie was starting to realize that's their really only play they have. The way he's jumping up and down, I love it. And, uh, you know, their plan now is to, I guess, follow Mr. Henderson and his upside-down gate detector his compass to quote unquote Mordor. And if you remember Mordor in the Lord of the Rings, uh, not a very friendly place. So now we travel back into Eleven's memories. Brenner talks about playing a game as he draws two chalk circles in the middle of the room. The rules of the game are, are quite easy. Stay in your circle. If you leave your circle, you leave the game. He takes two kids has them placed inside the circles blindfolded and says, if you allow anger or emotion to invade your thoughts, you will fail. I promise. So we see the two boys who appear to be older than 11. They're using their powers to try to push their opponent out of the circle, not touching each other, just using like their, their abilities to, uh, to shove the other person out of the circle. And two just goes through just about every kid. The first kid sends him flying back into the wall. He doesn't say, ooh, that's a little too much. 
He says, all right, who's up next? Every time someone goes up against two, they get destroyed. They, they get smashed back. I mean, not like really hurt, but, you know, they're, they're hurt enough. And they have to go sit in the other side of the room. Kid after kid after kid, two keeps winning. And then the last kid standing is 11. The orderly uh, gets behind 11, puts the blindfold on, and wishes her good luck as he puts the blindfold on her. And you could see that Brenner gives a, a glance. Like, he's not sure what this guy is up to. He's not, he's not sure he likes him talking to her. So Eleven goes up against this kid, and he starts winning. I mean, he's been doing it all day. He's, he's older. You think he's stronger. He starts pushing her back. But then Eleven thinks about what the orderly guy said, about how a bad memory could uh, help you focus. She thinks of her mother, and all of a sudden, she flings that kid right across the friggin' room. He smashes down, and he's like, what the hell just happened? And Eleven's like, whoa, I don't even think she could, she could believe that she did that. You could see that she, at this age, is starting to figure out how to focus and how to harness her power. And the fact that earlier when she tried to do something, she could barely light a light bulb while this kid was flipping the light bulb like crazy. And now this kid took out every single other kid except Eleven. So I think that was... Pretty cool, showing that, you know, she has this strength within her. So then we fly back over to Soviet Russia, where Murray, Yuri, and Joyce are making their way through the snowy terrain. They keep walking until they come across the village of Kirzman, or Kirzan, or I'm not sure exactly how he says it, but uh, Yuri directs them to a steeple. He says that is Yuri's warehouse, and Joyce comments that it looks like a church. And he says, well, let's see what miracles it holds as they make their way into this small town and into Yuri's building. He notices someone's been in his peanut butter and none of them realize if they only knew that it was Hopper himself who was eating that peanut butter. But Murray is more interested in weapons. He doesn't care about peanut butter. He wants to see weapons. And Yuri shows them a bunch of rifles. But he says, but never mind that. Wait until you see Yuri's flamethrower. Joyce doesn't care about any of that. She thinks they're just wasting time and they need to get going. So Yuri spreads out a giant map on a table. So prison is here between these two mountains. Approximately two hour drive. I don't see anything. Because it's not on the map, but it is there. Well, how do we know you're not leading us into some sort of trap? Because I do not need to. You want to break into deadliest prison in all motherland. <laughs> it is suicide. Who said anything about breaking in? Oh, you just expect to knock. Oh, hello, let me in. I'm friendly American with a big beard. <laughs> Something like that, actually, yes. You were planning to turn us over to the warden today. If I'm not mistaken. Ah, I see now. I bring you in as prisoners and then set you free inside walls. It is risky, crazy. You will still probably die. Yet, I like it. But for this to work, Yuri cannot be tied. Hey, it's hard to turn over prisoners when I'm a prisoner myself. Hey, 
I, I think the warden might find that suspicious. Which is why, from here on out, you're gonna be Murray. And I'm gonna be Yuri. I don't follow. Don't worry. It's a silent role. I love it. You know, we all know that Murray speaks fluent Russian. So now they're just going to walk right into the prison as Yuri had planned in the first place. It's about as good a plan as you can come up with, with, you know, being two civilians wanted from the KGB trying to break into a secret high security prison to stage a jailbreak. And speaking of said prison, we cut over to see Hopper and his crew of fellow prisoners finishing up with their pre-slaughter meal. As they're making their way through the prison yard, Hopper and Enzo start having an argument. Or at least that's how it appears. Enzo's saying he's mad that Hopper is not showing any hope. And he thinks if they work together, they can win. He says he wants to get back to his son, Mikhail. And Hopper's like, is your kid slow? Is he stupid? And at this point, I'm starting to think, this may not exactly be what it appears to be. They start arguing, saying, your kid, he must, if he takes after you, he must be, you know, an idiot. Uh, and then they start fighting. They start fighting, and then the guards get involved. Hopper ends up tackling one of the guards and ends up getting popped with the butt of a rifle uh, for doing that and gets dragged back to his cell with Enzo and everyone else. And Enzo was like, he, you know, he starts to ask Hopper, are you happy? Are you happy with what you just did? Was it worth it? We call it a demogorgon. I don't know how they got it here, what the hell they're doing with it. Everything I said about it is true. Except it has one weakness. Fire. Hates fire. So I figure if we want a shot at killing this thing, we need some fuel, and we need something to light it with. So you asked me if it was worth it. Answer your question. Yeah, I think it was worth it. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Oh, don't make me laugh. My ribs are broken. Don't make me laugh. <laughs> so there's a lot of awesome things there. Uh, first of all, back when they were uh, having the feast, you see Hopper you know, drinking a little bit. He had that bottle in his hand and he fell over pretending to be drunk. But what he actually did was just hide that in his jacket. Then right at the beginning of that scene, before they left the room where the food was, you see one of the guards lighting a cigarette with that lighter. And if you look off in the distance, Hopper is looking right at him. Then that's the guard who gets between he and Enzo as they had their fight in the yard, so he was able to tackle them, and at that moment, steal the lighter. And also, it doesn't seem like Enzo was in on this at all. Just Hopper pushed every button he could think of to get the man so angry to punch him to start the whole fight and end up with the lighter. And my only thought is, Demogorgon, Jim Hopper is coming for you. And I think that's the last we see of Russia in this episode as we travel 5,000 miles 
over to Salt Lake City. We see Susie's dad working on his computer as the power goes down. But I notice right before the power goes down, we get a brief glimpse of what he was typing. I took a screenshot of it, and it, it says, Preparing for a celestial marriage. Uh, hazardous uh, in that our happiness will be far greater if we date those who are members of our church. As our president, Gordon B. Hinckley, admonished, your chances, chances for a happy and a lasting marriage will be far greater if you will date those who are active and faithful in the church. The purpose of this life on earth is for us to learn and grow. We grow through making mistakes, and God understands that all of us will fall short as we strive to be like him. When we make mistakes, God allows us to repent and be forgiven for our sins so that we can learn to overcome our weakness. So it seems like, and again, this is not important really to the story at all. I thought maybe there'd be some sort of Easter egg thing in there. I just, I saw a screenshot. I saw something quick. I saw something written. I'm always interested in what's being on a screen when people are using computers in TV shows and movies. And it appears to me that he's writing either an essay or a story or a book uh, that is very much in the Mormon faith titled Preparing for a Celestial Marriage. And then I looked up on Wikipedia, it says a celestial marriage, also called the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, eternal marriage, temple marriage, or the principle, is a doctrine that marriage can last forever in heaven. Oh, well, I like that. Nothing wrong with that. So whatever he's, he's writing, um, I hope that he saved it because there ain't no cloud in 1986 and the power goes out. And you know the dad, like, he knows right away it's Cornelius. I love the way they all yell Cornelius in this episode. He heads downstairs to deal with things as Susie and the Van Clan sneak into his office. Wait, except Argyle. Where is Argyle? Susie quickly fires her dad's machine back up, and they get connected to the phone line, as all the kids downstairs do their best to stall dad. They connect to the phone number, and Susie ends up getting a bunch of weird code. Downstairs, the dad is distracted by, by sword-wielding children, arrow-shooting children, stovetop fires. They're doing everything they can to drive this man crazy and keep him occupied while everyone else upstairs, Susie and the boys from the van, are working to figure out what this phone number is connected to. Maybe it's hidden in the code somehow? What you just said makes no sense. Hold your butts, I'll just trace the IP. The, the I what? The internet protocol address. It's a unique numerical label given to all information technology connected to the internet. What's the internet? Don't worry about it. It's just gonna change the world. Much like the Lord of the Rings talk, Back in the middle to late 80s, the internet was something really only specific to people who were hardcore into computers. And a computer in every house wasn't really uh, a common, as common a thing. It was starting to become very common. I think we got our first computer, which was the Apple IIc, um, maybe a couple years earlier than that. But we definitely didn't have anything connected to the internet. Uh, way back then. And I just love that they're like, huh, what, what, what is that? And with the code, none of this makes sense. And she says, don't worry, it's just going to change the world. Oh, Susie, you are so right. 
So downstairs, the, for the dad, finally the fire is out. But then he finds one of his daughters choking on the floor. He freaks out. And then he hears cut. And the little girl starts laughing. And the kid, the little director kid with the mustache, he's like, incredible. And father, your terror. It looked genuine. The, the, the craziness that this guy must go through on a daily basis. So back upstairs in her office, Susie ran the IP through a geolocation software, which, again, in 1986, I'd be like, huh, what, what, geolocation? Now you hear geolocation, you think, oh, it's, you know, it's using the, um, now you could use the GPS. I don't know if they had, well, no, I guess they must have had GPS. I'm not sure when they had GPS, but you'd say GPS. You wouldn't say geolocation. Uh, software, but I'm wondering if it's, it has to be similar, but bingo, she's able to find the longitude and latitude coordinates of the location. 37 degree, I can't read longitude, latitude. I'm going to say 37 degree, three something, something north and 116 degree, five, 16.8 west. I don't know what that means, but luckily underneath it says Nevada and they're like, Nevada? And Mike says, can you print this? And Susie's response is so much like how Dustin would respond. You could see that they're both really smart kids who sometimes uh, do not have patience for other people who don't understand what they think, you know, is common and what comes to them so easy. She's like, no, uh, you know, I'm sorry. You know, my skills ended, data mining and geolocation. And then she presses a button on her dot matrix printer. And and Mike's like, oh, you were you were being sarcastic. Oh, OK. I love the sound of that printer. That printer sounds like my childhood. Sounds like me uh, uh, printing banners, signs for my uh, for my bedroom or printing papers for my uh, for school. I think my high school uh, term paper, my senior paper, which I wrote on heavy metal. And actually, I wrote on kind of the hidden messages in heavy metal um, albums and how people were, were blaming uh, some deaths on that. And it's kind of part of that whole satanic panning thing, actually. But I wrote it on the Apple II computer and had to print it. And then what you do is every, the pieces of paper are all connected. You had to rip the paper and hope not to tear anything. And then you had to, they were perforated. There were these little sides that that had holes in them that you fed, is how the paper were fed into the printer. And you had to pull those off too. Very different to the paper I'm holding in my hand right now. So dad finally has things under control and he starts to head back upstairs when he sees Susie running downstairs with three teenage boys he's never seen before. He looks absolutely perplexed. And the only thing he could think to yell is, slow down. Susie and all the boys run out of the house together. Uh, Susie hands them the printed information. And Mike comments that Dustin is right. You are a certified genius. But wait, where is Argyle? And Susie says, uh, do you smell skunk? Uh, sorry, Susie. That's not skunk you smell. 
They open up the van and they see Argyle laying there within a cloud of smoke. But he's not alone. He's there with Susie's sister, Eden. Argyle asks, hey, you have any luck? And Susie just looks in there with a mixture of like both shock and amazement on her face. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Back in Hawkins, the police are driving along and pass a truck filled with some pretty energized folks on their way to hunt Eddie Munson. Officer Catlin is freaking out, but Chief Powell just wants him to stay calm. And he says it pretty calmly. They get a call from that other police officer, the, the new young fella. He found the Wheelermobile over by Skull Rock. Powell knows that's just a stone's throw away from Lover's Lake. The rock is a stone's throw away. Whew. I love it. So Callahan's like, they're heading back to Lover's Lake? Why? And Powell says, there's only one way to find out. He whips his cruiser around and heads back that way. We find our friends following Dustin through the woods with his compass. Dustin keeps watching his compass go crazy and realize that something is happening as he heads off while the others follow, trying to keep up with him. He's following his compass. He's focusing on his compass so much that he almost walks right into the water. Watch your step, big guy. Oh, man. You gotta shit me. Yeah. I thought these woods were familiar. Lover's Lake. This is confounding. There's a gate in Lover's Lake? Whenever the Demogorgon attacked, it always left an opening. Maybe Vecna's the same way. Yeah, only one way to find out. So Eddie had that boat he was in. He must have hidden it and covered it because they were able to get to it. He uncovered it so they could uh, keep following the compass into the water. Eddie, Steve, Robin, and Nancy all get into the boat and Dustin starts to follow. And I love the little tantrum. He's like, this was my theory. He's angry. He's belligerent towards them. Uh, and he does this little pouty thing where he makes this face and he's like, he, he may as well have been saying, uh, but I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna. But nope, he stays ashore with Max and Lucas as the older kids shove off into the murky waters of Lover's Lake. And now we're back in Eleven's memories. Back with her playing with that Plinko game, trying to control the piece trying to guide it with her mind, but failing. She hears something, some screaming. She leaves the room and starts to follow, and we hear this zapping 
and screaming. And she looks into the room and she sees someone's being tasered by two other orderly dudes as Brenner just stands there and watches. She's almost spotted by him, but quickly gets around the corner as the door opens. And out comes Brenner and those two hospital workers, orderlies, whatever you want to call them. And they're dragging out who they were just tasering. And it's that creepy orderly kid who's been friendly, weirdly friendly, but friendly to Eleven. He looks barely conscious. Frightened, Eleven quietly backs her way back, back into the rainbow room, where this time she's not alone. You shouldn't be wandering the halls. It's against the rules. And not safe. Four older kids have her surrounded. You shame me today. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt you. You are weak and pathetic. I was holding back. And then you do that before everyone. Before Papa. How'd that feel? Do you like that? So they're roughing her up, and then she looks up and looks right at the security camera. See your light? I don't. Something must have happened to the power. It's not on. And with that, these these four jerks, three boys and a girl, they start shoving her, using their powers, shoving her back, back and forth flinging her this way, flinging her that way, and then two just uses his powers and slams her up against the wall. Tell Papa we did this. We will kill you. Okay, this may be a little controversial, but it's at this point where I'm thinking, okay, um, maybe I wouldn't mind if Eleven took out these four jerks at least. Maybe some of those other kids are good, but these four a-holes, um, they're threatening her life. They're saying they're going to kill her, and uh, I I believe it. And that the, the way that girl giggles, oh my goodness gracious, I'm like, ooh, I want them to get their comeuppance. But okay, I, I suppose the comeuppance they actually end up getting is a little bit extreme, if I may go out on a limb. Uh, but my goodness gracious, I hate these jerks. So as these sad loser bullies uh, leave the room, you hear a little scream again. Like Eleven notices there's some kind of, kind of scream off in the distance. And she turns and approaches the large mirror on the other side of the room. And she sees a younger version of herself covered in blood with more blood coming from her nose, from her eyes. She looks down at her current, her older self, and she sees the same blood all over her hands. The lights start to flicker 
and she starts having flashes of all the carnage we saw in the first episode. Bodies strewn about, blood everywhere. And then we hear and start to see Brenner coming in the room again, saying, What have you done, Eleven? What have you done? And then she wakes up startled and tearfully says, She knows what happened now. I killed them. I killed them all. Brenner is is um, comforting her. So is uh, Dr. Owens. He's there. He's like, okay, it's okay. And he's holding her hand. But she is very upset. And yet they don't tell her um, whether she's right or she's wrong. I feel like Brenner needs her to discover everything on her own to fully... Um, get past this and fully get her strength back. And that's it for Nevada. We leave the Nina Project behind in this episode as we head back over to Lover's Lake. Robin, Eddie, Nancy, and Steve are rowing along, paying close attention to the compass, when all of a sudden it goes a little cray-cray. Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. Slow down, guys. Whoa. Wait, whoa, wait. They're stopping. What are they stopping for? Guys, what's going on? Come on, guys. Talk to me. What's going on? Uh, Dustin, your your compass has gone from wonky to wonky with a capital. Ah. Steve, what are you doing? Somebody's got to go down there and check this thing out. Unless one of you three can top being a Hawkins High swim co-captain and a certified lifeguard for three years now. It's got to be me. No complaints. All right? Hey, I'm not complaining. I do not want to go down there. Steve takes off his shoes, his socks, and then his shirt. Did you catch that look that Nancy gave a shirtless Steve? Robin sure did. Oh. When Steve gets so hairy, right? I keep telling him he needs to tame that jungle, but he claims the ladies dig it. Let me see. Max takes the binoculars from Lucas to get a closer look at uh, Harrington's hairy chest. And she looks. And then she keeps looking. And okay, back to the boat. Eddie wraps a flashlight in a plastic bag to protect it from water. Gives it to Steve, who's ready to go. Eddie goes to light a cigarette, but Robin ain't having that. Gross. Nancy looks up at Steve very lovingly, and she says, Steve? Be careful. He gives a heroic nod and jumps into Lover's Lake. Someone has to jump into the water. Someone has to check what is down there. Only one of them is a trained lifeguard, a scripting co-captain with awesome hair. As he takes a leap into Lover's Lake, now it's crystal clear what this episode name had to be. It's the dive. So that's why they called it the dive, because Steve heroically dove into Lover's Lake to see what the hell's at the bottom of that water. And as he swims down, damn, that lake is deep because he looks tiny and he, he keeps going down 
down, down. And in the boat, they're just quietly waiting on him. On the shore, they're waiting for him too, but Dustin couldn't help himself and had to bring in some clever wordplay that nobody but him found funny. You guys realize there's a gate down there? Technically a water gate? Okay, I thought it was pretty funny. Watergate. <laughs> Below the surface, Steve makes his way to the bottom, and he's looking around. He sees a lot of fish bones down there. But then he turns as something's grabbed his attention. He sees off in the distance a red glow. Oh, shit. Steve starts swimming towards the glow. Where are we at, Wheeler? Closing in on a minute? Okay. <sighs> Come on, Steve. Come on. Max, Lucas, and Dustin notice behind them. It's 5 0. Hide. Shit, down, down. Who's on this bit of shoreline? At the bottom of the water, we see Steve bathed in a red glow. He, he found it the mouth of the gate. It's not really much bigger than he is. It seems really small at the bottom of this lake. And I guess heroically, I don't know, I I would have just swam right up, but he starts putting his hand towards the gate closer. Then he sees some sort of shadow, some sort of movement behind it, and he drops the flashlight and heads the hell back up. But we see a tentacle following him. You found it. Dustin, you're a goddamn Einstein. Steve found the gate. Dustin turned off his walkie because the cops are there. Shit. Can't let him find Eddie. Suddenly, Robin has an idea. Stay with me. Hey, officers! Over here, I found the killer. This way! She leads them away from Eddie. It's pretty wild. It's more of a snack size gate than the mama gate, but still. It's pretty damn big. Whoa, did something just grab Steve? That tentacle that followed Steve up grabbed him and dragged him below. What the hell was that, man? So they're freaking out on the boat. Then we see Steve get dragged all the way down, 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 in through the gate, then pulled up. And he lands in this dry, dead land covered in vines and tentacles. And then the tentacles start dragging him away. Meanwhile, back on the surface, the kids are running away from the cops still. And on the boat, Nancy says, Wait here! No, Nancy! God damn it! So Nancy jumps in to save Steve. Steve is still being dragged by the arm and finally smashes to a stop in the upside down. And at the same time, Dustin trips and is caught. And Lucas and Max stop too. Back on the boat with Eddie and Robin, Robin gets up and moves towards the edge of the boat. No, 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 no. What are you doing? She said, wait. Yeah, I heard her. She's in charge. Are you kidding me? I made that shit up. So Robin falls back into the water to go after Nancy and Steve. Not to be the only one left, Eddie, not excited about doing this, takes the dive as well, following the rest of his friends into Lover's Lake. In the Upside Down, now we see Steve, no longer being dragged. He stands up. 
he sees these red flashes of lightning in the distance. And then he hears and sees something approaching, something flying at him, something with these big wings. He starts to back up, and then he sees another one coming from a different angle, and another one. He runs quickly, and he finds an oar from an old dilapidated boat. He grabs it and starts swinging at these suckers. He takes a couple of them out, but there are just too many of them. One grabs him around the neck and holds him down as the other two sink their gross little fangs into his torso. (laughs) No! He's trying to fight these two little biting bastards off while a third one is choking him. The camera goes higher and higher as we see Steve fighting for his life. We hear him scream, a scream of help, a scream of pain. A scream of desperation. And then it all fades to black. And the episode comes to an end. Wow. That ended on some craziness. I mean, Steve is trapped by these little bastard monsters. Alone in the Upside Down apparently getting eaten alive. It is like so stressful seeing him left like that at the end of this episode. Uh, The first time watching it, not realizing what's going to happen. I actually didn't watch the seventh episode and the sixth episode together. I, I finished this episode and then I went to bed and was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then the next night, it wasn't until the next night that I watched the seventh episode to see what happened next. But we're not there yet. We're still here with the dive. What an incredible episode. What an incredible ending. What an incredible season so far. So what did we learn today? Well, I I jotted down a few things as I took my notes. We learned that Hopper and his fellow prisoners have one advantage that no other group in the prison have. They have Hopper. They had Hopper and his knowledge of the monster. We learn that Joyce and Murray have a plan. Could be a good plan, could be an insane plan, but it is a plan. We we knew this already, but we learn that Susie really is a genius. She figured out the location of the Nina Project. We also learn that her sister is a rebel, And she figured out the location of Argyle's weed. We learn that the Hawkins gang figured out that there is a gate in the water. And Steve Harrington is a goddamn hero. And the rest of Hawkins, we learned, they're in the middle of a satanic panic. A witch hunt for Eddie Munson. And it all starts with that son of a bee, Jason. Whew. I am exhausted. Just reliving that is getting me stressed and, and, and tired. And I'm like, oh, Steve. Oh, buddy, I hope you're going to be all right. Of course, I know what happens next. Most of you probably do. Not all of you do. I'm sure there's someone out there who listened to this, maybe, uh, before watching episode seven. And if you did do that, you're amazing. I didn't do that. I, I did it for a while. For the first four I didn't watch five, six, or seven until I finished those four. Then I finally watched five, then six, and seven. 
I feel like when eight and nine come out, I'm going to need to watch those right away. But here's the thing. I'm going to be at my mother-in-law's up in New Hampshire, um, helping her. She's going to have cataract surgery. So she's going to be there. Her dog's going to be there. My wife's going to be there and our dog is going to be there. Everybody there is going to do their best to keep me away from watching Stranger Things and podcasting about Stranger Things. But gosh darn it, I'm going to do my best to do all of those things and also be a good husband, a good dog dad, and a good son-in-law. I can do it. I can do it. But I don't have to worry about that right now. Right now, I'm just happy that I was able to talk about this episode with everybody. And I look forward to talking about the next episode with everybody. And I hope to do that a lot sooner than you may think. But not tonight and not today. Today is all about episode six. Today is all about the dive. And uh, just just an amazing, amazing episode that really sets up where the cliffhanging uh, episode seven takes us. Uh, I can't wait to talk about that next time. But until then, my friends, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Geek Mentality. You can find the show on Twitter at Stranger D Pod. Now, we have a Facebook page. I don't do a ton there. I post a lot of my movie month stuff, and I'll post these episodes there. You can find that just by going to facebook.com slash fansnotexperts. And, of course, everything we do, every episode of Stranger Danger, every episode of The Book Club, every episode of just about anything I do, can be found at fansnotexperts.com. And so I say, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Stay stranger, my friends. And remember, Hellfire is just a club for nerds. It has nothing to do with Satan. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 